Hello everyone and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. My name is Shane Brennan and I have the privilege of not only hosting this podcast but being the Chief Executive of the UK Cold Chain Federation. The Cold Chain Podcast is your window into the thinking of some of the key leaders who shape the UK temperature control distribution and storage industry but also a chance to think through and discuss some of the big issues and opportunities that face our sector. In the catalogue that you'll be able to see online of, of, of these discussions you've got some real key people who, who shape some of the main businesses and brands in, in our sector. But one of the other things I like to do is talk, bring to you conversations with people who do a very similar job to mine, who run representative organisations, um, because I think that that gives you an insight into the sorts of things that we're talking about on a day-in, day-out basis. One of those organisations is the Federation of Wholesale Distributors, the representative body for the businesses that wholesale, that buy and sell goods and distribute them through the complex network of retail, hospitality, care homes, and all the other sort of businesses that you don't immediately think of that need a robust and uh, healthy supply chain. James Bilby, who runs FEWD and has done for, for a number of years, he'll introduce himself um, in a moment, is a good friend and colleague, a good example of someone who, working through collaboration, we can achieve a lot and we have achieved a lot together in the past few years. Um, in this conversation, we're going to tell you a little bit about um, what we did during those COVID years and the Brexit years. It does get a little bit like one of those uh, podcasts where old footballers get together and talk about the good old days. We apologise for that. But mainly what we're trying to do in this conversation is explain what the last two or three years of industry action and inter interface with industry and government means for the challenges ahead. Because that's very much where our focus is, whether the Cold Chain Federation, whether the FWD or any other trade bodies out there, in our crucial role representing you as industry to government is making sure that we are uh, focused on what comes next and how we can make it easier for you to do the job and for our economy. Before we get into the conversation, can I remind you to subscribe or leave a review for this podcast? That really helps in terms of driving awareness of it. And if even go one further and share it with your friends. Thanks very much for listening, and I'm delighted to bring you the conversation I had with James Bilby. Hello, James, and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. Thank you, Shane. A pleasure to be here. It's great to be together. First time for you in our uh, offices here in Graysley. We very rarely get visitors, so it's great to see you. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here in deepest, darkest Reading. Okay. Um, can you just introduce um, yourself to our listeners? Yeah, uh, I'm James Bilby. I'm the Chief Executive of the Federation of Wholesale Distributors. We're the trade association representing those people supplying food and drink into retail, into food service, into public sector. We've got about 660 members up and down the country delivering to every postcode every day across a range of different commodities in the food and drink space. So any food and drink that you consume at any point in your day will be some way touched by our members. You've said that a few times before, haven't you? I certainly have. It's a, a drill, but um, but that's really crucial. I think one of the things that you know, you know, we know this, and people listening to this will, will understand our sector very well. But this this thing of the understanding the different ways in which food moves through the UK and gets to the end consumer, people tend to think first and foremost about retail, and they tend to think about supermarkets. Yeah. When of course there is a very diverse and mixed group of outlets and routes by which people get hold of food, and I guess FJBD, you're that complexity is where you guys live. Yeah, and it's definitely true what you say about the idea that people think supermarket first, certainly in terms of government policy. 
we saw that extensively during COVID, which I know we'll probably come on and talk about a bit later. But the government were all about protecting supply to the supermarkets because, quite rightly, that's where most people get their food from. But there was a, a job to be done by us, by you, by others, to say, actually, diversity of supply is really important. And if everything is focused around protecting supermarkets, then there's lots of people who miss out. So we supply into lots of uh, small stores. We've got 72,000 retail customers. Lots of those will be in, re- in rural areas, um, supplying vulnerable communities that don't have access to supermarkets. And the need to protect that supply was something that we were very keen to promote and push forward during COVID. And in fairness to us and friends up and down the supply chain, so people like the ACS, where of course Shane, when I first met you all those years ago, um, we did a, a good job of representing our interest to say actually there's a range and breadth of places that people get their food and drink and the government needs to recognise that. And, and in fairness to them, they, they did that to a large extent. Yeah, and no, certainly from a cold chain industry point of view, we very much know that complexity and the opportunity that brings in terms of storage and distribution opportunities. Um, so you've, you've touched on it. Obviously, we we know each other well. We're, we're old <laughs> friends, and you know, in our current uh, role, we've worked quite closely together in the last three or four years. But obviously, we've known each other well before that. Um, can you just sort of, sort of say a little bit about yourself and your background and how you've come to be a executive of the Federation of Households. Well, it's a series of uh, unfortunate incidents, probably. <laughs> Bad luck has led me to this place. Um, well, yes, uh, so I started my career um, as a journalist um, many, many years ago, back in the uh, mid to late 90s. Um, and after a series of different roles, I found myself writing about the convenience sector, writing about the wholesale sector. And that would have been the point in which our paths first crossed when you were working as um, ACS Public Affairs Director. Association of Convenience Stores. And uh, Head of Comms there for a while, I think. Um, And, you know, the really interesting sector. And the titles that I was editing, eventually, uh, were writing about um, wholesale as much as convenience and writing about the suppliers who um, sell their products to wholesale who then pass those on to uh, retail in this instance. But obviously there's lots of other types of customers as well, food service and public sector. Not to sound too much like the old Gitch reminiscing on the old days, yeah. but, the two th- but the early 2000s, which is when we're talking about, was, yeah. was probably that moment when the convenience industry basically exploded and sort of wholesale went through a big change at that time as well, didn't yeah. it, in terms of servicing um, a changing consumer need. Yeah, indeed. There was, so we had the growth of the symbol groups, so yeah. people who are you know buying food probably think they're sort of small supermarket chains they're not their franchises in broad terms well not quite franchises but that's a the sort of best way of describing it and uh yeah wholesalers had an interest in helping those stores succeed by giving them marketing support making sure that their offer to consumers was good and we were writing about that so i got to know quite a lot of the wholesalers through that work um and then Sometime towards the end of the 2000s, the FWD, Federation of Wholesale Distributors, were looking for somebody to go and do their communications in-house. And, and, you know, I was interested in politics, always been interested in politics and public affairs. Um, Hopefully I'm a reasonable communicator. And so it was a a good fit for FWD at that time. That was 2000 and end of 2008. Mm. early 2009 Um, and then there was a restructure uh, within FWD and the the guy who was running the organisation retired and uh, yeah I was lucky enough to um, get it get the hot seat as it were and I've been doing that now for about 13 years something like that a long time 
Um, and lots of the issues that we tackle and talk about as FWD are different, but lots of them are depressingly very, very similar. Um, but the market's changed massively over the last 13 years. It's a totally different landscape now, both in terms of our members, the customers that they supply, um, the way that products move around and the types of products that are being moved around. It's a very, very different place. And obviously one of the things that people when they engage with trade associations like ourselves they probably ask themselves the question you know well, why does fwd exist and cold chain federation and food federation and other, and other organizations and i think we would both have a good answer to why why that is but can you sort of explain exactly where fwd's sort of role is sort of is in in, in the mix as you see it in the, over the time that you've yeah. led it well, it's a good question, and one which I sometimes ask myself in the middle of the night. Uh, why do we exist? Why are we here? <laughs> but the reason why we have a myriad of different voices in terms of trade associations is because each has a niche, in effect. Mm. And they're talking about areas of the market that nobody else does. There's lots of associations that talk about bits of it. But we, as FWD, are the only people who are there to represent wholesalers and wholesalers only. Um, same with the cold chain, you're representing that cold chain distribution, uh, which we talk about a little bit, but not to the extent that you would do as an organisation which is set up primarily to do that. But we all sit together as part of the wider chain, and we all collaborate on mutual interests or talk about things which are relevant to all of us, but we all have our own little corner that we are uh, mandated to talk about, and we do talk about, but then at the same time, we come together as well as an industry, and that's one of the great things about the food and drink supply chain, it's so vast. But, you know, we, you and I both know the uh, NFU, the National Farmers Union, right through to Association of Convenience Stores, UK Hospitality, British Retail Consortium, it's all end-to-end stuff via the manufacturers and via the distributors as well. Um, and I think that's one of the strengths of the food and drink industry, certainly over the last three years, um, the ability to be able to position it as an end-to-end uh, sector and say this is food this is really really important the economic contribution of all of us is massive yeah. and it's a real shame that it took a global pandemic to help uh, government realize that but you know we've all done a really important part uh, in talking about our own little bit of that yeah. but saying we're all part of a bigger whole i think that's the and i think that point about and let's talk about covid now the um and the covid period i think it sort of sets the context for asking about the health of the industry mm today in 2023 but the, uh, the the thing that struck me during the covid period was that whilst we've had a very healthy debate going on for a number of years about production of food and on the other side how we retail food the bit in the middle wasn't really getting a lot of focus and all of a sudden we had a well we've had two big crises one engineered by ourselves through the brexit decisions and the way we've implemented that yeah. and then also then the covid pandemic so that sort of focusing on how food gets to to the to the consumer mm. has really sort of come into focus. Yeah. What do you think are the sort of standout things that came through that period from your perspective? Yeah, well, it's not a period I like to dwell on particularly. I've still got the scars from <laughs> dealing with COVID. It was almost well, three years ago, almost to the day that we headed into lockdown, at which point lots of our members, customers, so lots of those hospitality outlets, the pubs, the restaurants, public sector settings they essentially closed their doors 
uh, to a large extent and lots and lots of wholesalers were left uh, with product that they couldn't sell, um, money that they couldn't get from their customers and no prospect of being able to get back to where they were in you know January 2020. So it was a pretty scary time for lots of wholesalers and as an association it was our role to say to government you know we need help and we need support because you're giving support to supermarkets you're giving support to outlets um, but you know there's these distributors in the middle who help get those products to those uh, settings if you like where people buy their food who aren't getting any help and they're in a position where they're essentially going to go out of business without some recognition from government um, but we also did things to help ourselves proactively so for example lots of food service businesses who didn't have the customer base available to them um, they had product which they had to move and you know food waste is a massive issue um, one that every person who's involved in the food and drink supply chain is keen to eradicate that was a problem for us so we worked with the FSA um, and we worked with um, various food charities to try and ensure that there was guidance in place to allow products which were uh, essentially going to be thrown away could be repurposed could be sold could be donated and that was a that was a really important um, sort of outcome and win if you like because things have changed now as a result of that but and but, you you deserve personally a lot of credit for that James and that was that was the area within that area during that time and see I was involved in a lot of the meetings the discussions and involved in different areas of of, of the crisis that was the area where I would certainly see that your your leadership and the CFW's leadership was absolutely the standout in delivering on that element of it. But I totally recognise your point about, and I think it's a sort of mentality in government around supermarkets, retail, you know, because it's such a complex world. Yeah, it's it's not a criticism necessarily of how they see of how things work, but because there's a quite a lot of resource there, because there's quite a lot of seniority of people that are experienced in dealing with government in the retail space, yeah. in the manufacturing space, yeah they tend to sort of default to thinking about them and there was a, however the real problems were in that space where we suddenly had a supply chain mm. in that was servicing um hospitality that had to shut down overnight yeah and that 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 was something that was sort of a secondary sort of was sort of hit everyone a bit hard outside mm. of our industry i think yeah and members did a lot to pivot their offer as well so they were selling direct to consumer um, you know, people were at home, so they were able to be a bit more adventurous with some of their meal choices, and they were able to buy bigger volumes. But lots of this stuff was difficult for them to get rid of because you know, food chains, food charities, food banks didn't want or couldn't store. I mean, it's your world, the cold storage world. They couldn't store lots of these products because they're huge, and it's very difficult to break them down. These were things which were designed for restaurants to make into meals, but. Uh, members also helped um, care homes a lot. So uh, amazingly, care homes were buying from supermarkets, which is hugely inefficient, hugely expensive. And as people were stuck at home, you uh, will remember that it was really difficult to get a delivery slot. So lots of care homes were essentially saying, well, we can't feed our, um, our residents. And our wholesalers were saying, well, hang on, there's a bit over here of the market who can help. We were able to help. We set up as FWD a website, foodtocare.com, I think it was called, uh, where care homes who were struggling to um, get deliveries were able to say, right, we've got this operator in our local area who can help us. And that was brilliant because it helped those distributors, those wholesalers stay afloat at a time when lots of their commercial revenue had totally disappeared overnight. Um, and eventually we did manage to get some support 
um, from government with help with things like business rates, grants from local authorities. That was a hard slog. I remember how hard that was to get to get that one over the line. But you definitely, you guys definitely stuck at it. I also remember the the work that was done by some of your members, biggest members, or our shared members, in fact, yeah. um, who um, to get get packages to the vulnerable, the people that were sheltering and isolating. Yes, yeah, indeed. So a couple of the largest food service wholesalers, Breaks and Bid Food, um, they came together. They collaborated. They were essentially rival businesses. Mm. The two biggest food service operators in the UK were working in concert to help people who were stuck at home, who were isolating. And that was brilliant to be able to do that as a sector. So there was lots and lots of opportunities from the uh, pretty um, scary landscape. But, you know, we've never really gone back to where we were to, in 2019. No, no, let's, let's talk about legacy, I think. Yeah. Because, I mean, as much as it's, it, it's, it's interesting to sort of to go into the nostalgia <laughs> of that period. But um, obviously one of the, some of the trends that sort of we talk about, the, mm. the legacy of COVID, mm. I think the first one I'd probably point to is is the, the sort of growth explosion at that time in the people buying product to delivery at home. So it was obviously yeah. in the retail sector, but also in the food service sector. Yeah. What's the legacy of that, do you think, for, from, from, from a wholesale perspective? Yeah, I think, well, lo- lots of wholesalers did sort of move their offer to direct-to-consumer. Um, there's bits of that left, but not really. That hasn't been much of a legacy. That was just a sort of a distress point that they had to do something to get rid of their stock and keep themselves you know, afloat with cash coming in. So that I wouldn't say that's necessarily been one of the legacies so that we've on, seen. So online, so the online phenomenon, because there is still a significant percentage of people that yeah. are continue to buy delivery to home yeah. across both retail yeah. and hospitality, yeah. that's still something that's done via the end retailer. Or the end whole restaurant, rather than yeah. this idea of the dark store and the direct to consumer offer hasn't really taken off as much as no. people might have predicted. No, but our members have invested hugely in e-commerce, yeah. and that's the area of growth. And, and thinking about their offer to their business customers, because not every person who's running a business is buying from Amazon and various other websites. The experience that they get from their wholesaler hasn't necessarily been replicated in terms of the offer, and that's one of the things that they spend time and money on over COVID and beyond to say, right, how can we get that e-commerce offer up to scratch? Because that's the way that people are, are ordering now. And that's, you know, being in massive growth, that's only going to continue. And it was accelerated by COVID. It was happening anyway, but the pace just picked up a lot. Yeah. Another area of COVID that we talked about, we talk about a lot and, and, and just generally the legacy and where we are now is the issues around labour force yeah. and availability of people to do the job. Where are we yeah. on that, do you think, from a wholesaling perspective? Well, yeah, that's right. We came out of COVID. Well, came out of COVID. You know, we came out of the various lockdowns. In mm-hmm. uh, although we have had other lockdowns, but let's say twenty twenty one, summer of twenty twenty one. We we you will remember, and people listening will remember the HGV driver shortage crisis. That was a long time brewing. Yeah. We both know that was not something that was was happening just overnight. But again, it was accelerated by COVID. It was accelerated by Brexit. Lots of different factors came together, and we had that shortage of labour. It's still there, um, and it's not just limited to HGV. It's across a whole range of different functions within a wholesale business. You know, lots of lower skilled roles uh, are difficult to fill, and that's driven a lot of uh, wage inflation. Um, so you know, the costs of a wholesaler in terms of their labour, it's a massive, massive contributor to their overheads, and it's gone up hugely over the last two years. And there's still vacancies. But that's not just limited to us. That's up and down the food and drink supply chain. We've seen some temporary visas for certain points, sort of upstream with the pickers and the, you know, the poultry workers. 
that's helpful um, to the extent to which that's been sort of successful, you, you could argue, but we haven't seen anything beyond that really. And there's still lots and lots of vacancies. And that's, that's led to food price inflation. So people buying food and drink now are paying more for that. A range of different factors, but one of those is because of the labour shortage. Yeah. And I guess the other one, the last one to talk about in terms of legacies of COVID and where we are now is the cost of energy and the cost of other inputs. Yeah. How is the how are the sort of wholesale sectors sort of seeing the, the challenge of, 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 of rising energy costs um, in their operations and how is that impacting on cost to consumers and cost operation generally? Yeah, well, it's one, one of the factors that's led to that massive food price inflation, Ukraine, of course, being the other one, which is not unrelated to the energy crisis. They, members were facing into, you know, hundreds percent increase in their energy bills. Some of that was mitigated by government interventions, but they're due to come to an end uh, at the end of March. Um, costs are not coming down to the extent that they need to. So yeah, we we're we've been protected and insulated a little bit by government intervention, but certainly uh, lots and lots of challenges to come. And as a wholesale industry, we're not seen as energy intensive. Although of course, you know, your members and ours are both um, spending a lot of money on energy in terms of their storage, in terms of their distribution costs, running sheds so that need heating, need lighting, storing products, moving those products in multi-ton vehicles. It's a lot of money. Um, we're not necessarily seeing the help that we need at the moment. And that's quite scary for lots of wholesalers because all of their cost base is going up. Um, their customers' costs are going up. We're seeing uh, predictions of uh, you know smaller stores and um, food service outlets potentially closing their doors because they can't afford to pay their energy bills. That has a knock-on impact upstream, of course, because there's fewer people to sell products to. So, yeah, it's it's... It's sort of been okay, but uh, the worst is yet to come, I think. What do you think? It's quite bleak. Um, I think, yes, I agree. I totally agree. So I think one of the things that, you know, we say this, and, and sometimes it feels like we are um, uh, sort of ple- pleading or special pleading when we say it, but we are operating at low margin operations yeah. in the supply chain. Yeah. You know, if, there is, if there's profit in the food supply chain, it very rarely is playing out in the people that are doing the moving moving stuff on vehicles, putting stuff in, in storage. Yeah. You know, and in the wholesale case, obviously taking title of product and then selling it on, that is a low margin operation. Yeah. So you are more exposed to high spikes in on cost. Yeah. yeah. And um, and that is a really important thing. Now, to a certain extent, I think that's the, the business we choose to be in as a sector mm-hmm. and that we're skilled at doing it and you succeed by doing it well. Yeah. Um, and I guess the question that um, I sort of play around in my mind when we discuss these things, and we, you know, yours and my job is to be the, the interface between the industry on the one hand and government on the other. Yeah. Um, and two sports that often talk to each other. But how much is it the role of government to step in and sort, sort those problems out for industry? It's, it felt like it was like the only option during COVID. But now mm. that we're post-COVID, yeah. what, what, where are we at on the balance well, of that? Well, I think the government would argue it's not their place. You know, they, they did bend over backwards to help in COVID yeah. and that cost us a lot of money. You could argue that that wasn't done efficiently, but, you know, at the time they had to move a pace and all power to them. You know, they did a, so, you know, this, the um, furlough scheme, for example, yeah. saved a lot of businesses from going yeah. bust. Yeah. Clearly, we've got to pay the, the bill for that. Um, to what extent is it government's place to step in? Well, it's a difficult one, really, because a business would say, yes, we should be uh, be given help but someone else needs to pick up the bill for that. 
that that's the role that sometimes trade associations fall into. I'm always very mindful of the fact that we don't want to do that. We want to say there's a, we don't want to say to government we need help, but we don't want to pay for it. So I mean, Rishi Sunak and, and Jeremy Hunt, their sort of current sort of mantra is that you know inflation is the enemy. Yeah, we've got to bet on inflation. Yeah, so stepping in and putting lots of money and support into the into the sector from taxpayers' money, Yeah, I mean, that is the driver of inflation, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is, yeah. And inflation is coming down. I mean, food yeah. price inflation is running above and ahead of uh, standard inflation mm. because of all of the things that we've talked about, all those externalities. But there's a limit to what government can do. Um, mm. But it's often not just about giving them, you know, money. It's also about support and, and understanding the impact of policy. Mm. So, we, you know, we've been thinking a lot and talking a lot over the last few months about sustainability and the path towards net zero. And, and, well, and today you and I have come from um, our shared member Cisco site where they were showcasing one of their, their latest investment in electric vehicles yeah. and trying to show leadership in that area. Yeah. I mean, to what extent to what extent does that, and that's probably the point to take our conversation on to, yeah. um, what, to what extent in that transition, so coming out of the crisis years, well, can't guarantee they're over, but coming out of the crisis years, yeah. going into the next phase, yeah. to what extent is it government's job to fund, support and sustain the transition that our industry needs to go through? Or to what extent do we, is it about leadership from the industry itself? Well, it's a combination of factors. So yeah, you're quite right. We've just come from breaks where they've been unveiling an electric vehicle, really exciting development. However, the ability that that business has to roll out and comparable businesses have to roll out similar vehicles is limited and restricted by the infrastructure that's in place. Mm-hmm. So yes, gov- uh, you know, industry does show leadership, but they need help from government in order to take that leadership through to its logical conclusion. So things like support with planning, um, putting in place a- enough charging points, allowing businesses to make the leadership steps that they need to do does need help from government. And that's not a handout, that's saying help us deliver those um, ambitious net zero targets that we're all aspiring to. Absolutely. I think, and actually, you know, relative to the current business model, whether it, whether it comes to energy costs or anything else, there's a lot of potential in there for business to spend money yeah. on solar panels, wind turbines, yeah. uh, battery storage, well, all these different elements of technology that are expensive, but are the business case is there now, when mm. it is in this window. Yeah. But you can't get them because you can't get planning permission yeah. or you can't get access to the local grid. Yeah. These things are scandalous given where we're at and what we're supposed to be trying to achieve. Yeah. So I sort of see that as our our shared mission, if you like, in the next phase. You know, yeah. Now that we're post, inverted commas, post-COVID yeah. and post-Brexit, it's how do we deal with this? How do we face into this? And how yeah. do we actually free up the industry to be able to get on and do this yeah. stuff? Yeah, exactly. So that, that's the role that government has, is allowing businesses to help themselves by giving them the, the support and the infrastructure that they need. And so do you think that the restructure of government that we saw this week, um, with the creation of a Department of Energy Security and Net Zero, is a step in the right direction in that regard? It's definitely a step in the right direction. Whether it's a priority that the government should be spending time on, you could argue, uh, really, is that, what is that what they're interested in, the, the business of government? Well, they but, definitely should be spending time on it. Whether they've got the brand bandwidth to do yeah. so in the next 18 months is probably a different question. Yeah, it was a mistake to get rid of the old deck department. Um, and yeah, that it's been recognised that energy security and net zero is probably the number one priority long term for every business, um, certainly the businesses that we represent. I think that stands out to me as a theme as well. The theme yeah. of the last three years and the bridge to the next 10 yeah. is this issue of resilience. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. we proved ourselves to be resilient. 
through COVID. It was precarious at times, but actually the, the story of it was we succeeded. We kept people fed, businesses in the main stayed in business. Yeah. And, and, and we came out of it, I don't know if stronger is the right word, but we came out of it, um, we came out of it. We were certainly match fit at the end of it. Match fit. I, I think that's right. I mean, we were saying that without support and help, uh, some of our members would go to the wall. As it transpired, some people exited the market by choice, but no businesses went bust. And that's because they did get some support from government, um, the, both the general support, but also the specific support for wholesalers. But they demonstrated their resilience. That's absolutely right. And that, that's sort of heartwarming to think that, you know, you're representing, you're the you're sort of voice of those businesses who were against all the things that were thrown at, the, at them from Brexit through COVID, through labour shortages, through problems in Ukraine, which led to energy and commodity um, challenges, availability issues, to be still standing and still supplying food and drink to people up and down the country every day in every postcode is, is awe-inspiring, really. I and mean, it, it's an honour to be able to, uh, and a privilege to be able to serve them. We could talk all day. Yes. We probably will, and we're going to go and have a, have, a, have a lunch in a minute. I think we should yeah. do that. We deserve that. Um, <laughs> Can you just sort of, sort of, when we wrap up, I'm just saying a few words about what's, what's, what's ahead, what's coming up in the year ahead for the for FWD? So our, our role as a trade association is not just the lobbying work that we do. Um, that's a, you know, the, we are unique in this space that we're the only organisation talking primarily about wholesale issues to government. But we also have all of our networking, like every other trade association. It's an opportunity to bring your suppliers and your wholesalers, in our example, together to talk about issues beyond the competition agenda give people advice, give people the uh, opportunity to talk to each other in an informal or formal setting. And one of the things, like every other trade association and lots of other businesses, one of the things that we had to do uh, in the dark days of 2020 is move all of that online, um, which is actually something we've continued to do, but also reintroduced all of our face-to-face activities. So we've got more networking, more advice, more events um, than we've ever had. In, in a range of different ways. So we're downloading and touching more, not physically, but we're <laughs> touching more members than we ever have done by the fact that we're saying, well, your online works, but also there's a need for that face-to-face networking. So, so from a, if, you're, if you're involved in a cold chain operation like our members are that might be listening to this, you yeah. know, you're involved in, in, in vehicle distribution or you're involved in, in, in storage and warehouse, where are the opportunities? What are the things that you guys sort of work on in areas that might be of interest to them? Yeah, so uh, obviously we work in partnership with um, you know, people like the Cold Chain Federation on those transport issues, on those distribution issues. Um, I think where we can add value to the Cold Chain Federation members is the, the members that we represent. There, lots of them, it's not their primary focus. You know, they do multi-temp, but it's not, it's not their only reason to exist. And I think working in partnership with other trade associations to tap into your expertise, your knowledge, use those networks and pass them on to our members is really, really important to us. Absolutely. And I, th- I think that people can get a real insight. I think if you're, oper- even if you're doing logistics, you do, you're better at logistics if you understand the businesses, you're trying, the needs of your customers. Yeah. And, you know, in, in wholesaling, they kind of sit both as, as, op- as, as distributors and also customers. So understanding and plugging into the FW network is, I think, very valuable people. James, it's been great to talk to you. Um, I look forward to working more with you in the, in the years ahead on all the things we talked about today. Thank you for joining us on the Cold Chain Podcast. Thank you very much, Shay. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you found that conversation interesting and insightful. Thank you very much for listening. I certainly enjoyed talking to James. I hope you found some interesting insights in there. Um, And 
as I said, don't forget, please subscribe, please leave a review. And we look forward to you joining us again on the Cold Chain podcast.